Wadada, wadada da ye. This episode goes out to mom. Happy Mother's Day. Ma, sometimes things don't make a lot of sense, like how to make a dollar out of 15 cents, like why the stock market keeps making new highs. With 10 million people out of work, that was a surprise. Like why Dogecoin is worth anything at all. You can't buy nothing with it, not even at the mall. Like why chicken prices have nearly doubled this year, and now inflation is everyone's fear. Like why if I'm vaccinated, I'm still wearing a mask. So many questions, so many to ask. Sometimes the answers can be pretty hard to find, and all you can do is bear down and grind. Mom says, "Keep learning and always do your best, and keep that train moving." On the Investopedia Express. Welcome to the week, and we have a big show in store as Rashad Bilal and Troy Millings from Earn Your Leisure drop by, and we get into what's happening with COVID nineteen vaccine patents with Dr. Jessica Shepard from Verywell. But first. Bad news can be good news for equity markets, and last week was one of those examples. The Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S and P 500 hit record highs again on Friday, despite a much weaker than expected April jobs report. U.S. employers added 266,000 jobs last month, but economists were forecasting gains of more than one million. The unemployment rate ticked slightly higher to 6.1 percent as more Americans fell out of the workforce. The labor force participation rate is 61.7 percent. For a little perspective, it's been around 63% for the past few years, and it was high as 67% in the 1980s, but it's been falling ever since. President Biden and Treasury Secretary Yellen acknowledged the weakness in the labor market, with the president urging the passage of the American Families Plan. It provides up to $300 per month in childcare tax credits and universal pre-K, among other provisions. The administration is worried about the large number of women who have left the workforce in the past year amid the pandemic, in addition to the low. Labor force participation rate. The issue is that many companies say they can't find enough workers to meet demand. Big business lobbies and the Chamber of Commerce say those extended unemployment benefits of $300 per week, on top of the other unemployment insurance, is dissuading millions of Americans from seeking a job. That $300 per week benefit, which was extended by President Trump in the Heroes Act and continued by President Biden in the American Rescue Plan, it expires at the end of August unless it's renewed. The reaction in the stock market to last week's jobs report was that Treasury yields fell, as investors are pretty much convinced that the Federal Reserve won't raise interest rates any sooner than 2023, and it will remain accommodative and as gentle as a dove. That put the charge back in technology stocks, which have been sagging in the past couple months as nominal interest rates have risen. Those high-growth technology stocks do a lot of borrowing, so rising rates can sting a little bit. Big money has been rotating from growth to value and recovery plays all year, but last Friday saw big tech flex for the first time in a while. As we start the week, the Dow Industrials and S and P 500 are at record highs, and tech stocks are a little soft going in. The inflation watch is in full effect. The Fed and the Treasury brought it up last week, and we'll get a reading on core inflation this week. But inflation has hit the chicken coop just in time for Memorial Day. Chicken prices have nearly doubled from a year ago when suppliers were overwhelmed with frozen, unsold poultry as restaurant sales ground to a halt. Boneless, skinless chicken breast, the poultry industry's flagship product, last year averaged around one dollar a pound. Now it's trading at more than two dollars a pound. The average price over the last decade, only about a dollar thirty per pound. What's going? I say, what's going on here? Well, I don't stand there with your beak open. Say something. Take it easy, Foghorn. And、one reason for those higher prices is the chicken sandwich wars. I'm telling you, I'm not the only one obsessed with these. You got McDonald's, Popeyes, Wendy's, Shake Shack, Chick Fil A, Buffalo Wild Wings, and Wingstop, and just about every fast and casual food chain out there in this battle royale for fried bird. And it's making chicken prices fly. 
Speaking of flying, Dogecoin prices lost a lot of altitude over the weekend as Elon Musk, who likes to call himself the Doge Father, made his debut on Saturday Night Live. In the weekend update skit on the show, Musk, playing a financial commentator, admitted that the quasi-crypto token basically has no value and it's a scam. No surprise there, but what was surprising was that Musk was kind of funny on the show. But if you're a recent purchaser of Dogecoin, the 30% decline over the weekend is not funny. We're keeping an eye on oil and gas futures this week following a cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline, one of the largest oil and gas pipelines in the country. Colonial carries about 2.5 million barrels per day of oil and fuel from the Gulf Coast to the Northeast, and it was forced to halt all pipeline operations on Friday night following a ransomware cyber attack. The pipeline encompasses more than 5,500 miles and carries nearly half of the East Coast fuel supply. In case you missed it last week, the Biden administration has backed a temporary suspension of intellectual property rights that would prevent vaccine makers like Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and Moderna from patenting their COVID-19 vaccines. It also plans to support waiving intellectual property rights on those vaccines that would prevent countries like China and Russia from learning the trade secrets and technologies that go into making these remedies. All this while vaccine makers are rushing to get full approval from the FDA for their COVID-19 treatments. Remember, all of them are approved for emergency use only right now, but given the fact that we may have to get immunized annually, all of these developments have significant impacts on the bottom lines of these pharma giants and on the ways patients like us will be treated in the future. It's important and it's complicated. That's why I'm bringing in an expert. Dr. Jessica Shepard is the chief medical officer of VeryWell.com, our sister site here at Dot Dash, and a really good website for all your health questions. Welcome, Jessica. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for being here. Let's start with the Biden administration's moves to prevent the patenting of vaccines. What does this practically mean? Will there be a bunch of generic COVID-19 vaccines on the market soon? Well, when you think of him actually waiving that, From his perspective, he is looking at it from a global health crisis. He really understands that there are so many different circumstances with this round of vaccines and what that means from a global perspective. If you even think right now of India and what they're going through, he is looking at it from that perspective and he is really trying to maintain the integrity of how we actually treat the rest of the world when it comes to vaccines, which typically in the past also has had some issues. We know that wealthier countries are pretty effective at getting the vaccines out. We know here in the United States, we have over a third of the population vaccinated. You can see that in parts of Europe, but it's not going very well at all in India and other parts of the world. So is this an attempt to help get more vaccines to them from these drug makers on the terms that we have them? Yeah, absolutely. This is how we actually impact a global health perspective. However, if you understand from a pharmaceutical standpoint that development alone of a vaccine is quite expensive. And so typically after a vaccine, you have those, those timeframes in which no one else can do that. That's what that patent is for. It's protection, of course, obviously, to make sure that whoever put the R&D and the research into the vaccine is going to be able to market it, therefore patent and then be the sole provider of that And that means for shares and for markets and whatever they seek for reimbursement in matter of sense from that R&D, they want that back. And that's what that patent in in the past has actually protected. So when we're looking at sharp revenue, profit gains during this timeframe after the crisis, they are really looking at it from that perspective. I know the biggest lobbyist groups are probably really active in trying to make sure that this unprecedented step may not undermine the company's response to the pandemic with the development of the vaccine. 
Yeah, let's not forget that these are private companies, but publicly traded companies as well, worth tens of billions of dollars. Pfizer and Moderna reported very strong earnings recently. They're counting on these vaccines and the fact that we'll likely have to keep taking them in the future for their bottom lines. This is a huge deal for them, right? Absolutely. They are really watching from, they know, vaccine perspective in the development and how quickly that actually took, that there are a lot of people behind the scenes that intend on seeing what that would mean for them from a revenue standpoint thereafter. Right. So let's unpack this rush for them to get the full FDA approval. These seem to go hand in hand. What goes into that and why is that so important? Is that for the very same reason? Yeah. If you remember, and I think this actually impacts just the word emergency alone, is people think that, one, they came up with it from a very short time frame in order to get it out. And that's why we have some vaccine hesitancy. But this is something as far as what the actual template of this vaccine has been, has been used in the past significantly. There's nothing new. Emergency in this case means that they took all efforts towards the vaccine development in order to get it to the distribution and to the U.S. and population as quick as possible. That's what that really means, that word of emergency. And I always like to emphasize that because it kind of has a connotation that they just came up with it emergently. But now going after that, they want to do a biologics license application. And that is where they need full approval of the drug or the vaccine. And that's what was required the six months of data, which they were able to do in two months. But after this, the regulatory approval of the vaccine actually has the ability for the companies to market the vaccine, which we obviously just discussed that has now looking at patent, possibly waiving that. And then that allows them to market the vaccine, which is why they're trying to rush this application, which we know is a publicly traded company that makes a huge difference. Absolutely. These are potential blockbusters here. And you you said it also, that word emergency also does some things psychologically to people who are considering the vaccine or considering not taking the vaccine. It sounds like it was rushed to market. It was, but it has proven to be pretty effective. Let us look at this from the patient perspective right now. This is what you specialize in. How are we likely to get vaccinated in the future? Is this going to be like a flu shot for us? All vaccines, when you think of the actual, what they're doing, what are they doing? If you can take it from that perspective, you can understand why there might be, you know, your booster shot, as we think. Now, the viruses are typically very smart. Viruses, if you were kind of like a spy, I'd want to be a virus because they just change their code all the time, which is why we have to have boosters because they kind of change the replication. And therefore, that can change the ability for the disease to be transmitted. It could allow for the previous vaccine that we got this initial two doses or one dose if you're J&J. It really does change how you're able to prolong the coverage of the vaccine that you got. That's what that means, the ability for the virus to change. So we typically, again, from research, look at other continents, usually Australia, to see how they fared in flu season. And then we're able to make the changes to the next vaccine, which is why we get the flu vaccine every year, in order to protect ourselves that next year, that next flu season. Now, what I see from COVID, we already had some variants from the time that we had the initial kind of shock of COVID. We know that there have been some variants over time. And you have seen some countries had then a sharp increase, again, in what they had in deaths and mortalities. So typically, it would be not uncommon if we did have to have a booster. That's what we've seen. Even for measles, mumps, rubella, you're supposed to get a booster every 10 years, which most people don't. But if you look at COVID, I highly suspect that there's going to be some type of booster system. Would it be annually? That's what we need to 
see what would come up with what they're able to see from the research and also from the data from what we had from the coverage of these two initial vaccines. So I think there's a lot more time for us to determine if that's going to be needed. If it does happen, it would be uncommon. Again, these are the times when you take that time as an individual or a family to decide if you do want to get a booster. But again, if we do suspect that it's going to decrease your chances of getting COVID again, that's when you have to decide, is it possible that I'm increasing my risk of having COVID again? That's what it really boils down to a really good conversation with a healthcare provider who's going to be able to guide you through that. Yeah, but no matter what, this is with us for a while, so we're going to be dealing with it in some form or another. It is complicated, which is why we bring in the experts. Dr. Jessica Shepard, the Chief Medical Officer, very well. Thanks for being on The Express, and we're going to have you back. Thanks so much. I can't wait. Please bring me back. Let's get set up for another busy week ahead. We're on the back nine of earnings season, so to speak, and nearly 800 companies will report results this week. As we've said, earnings results from S&P 500 companies have beaten expectations for both profits and sales by an average of over 20%. This week, we'll hear from companies including Disney, Airbnb, and Tyson Foods, among others. At Disney, Inside the Magic Kingdom will be anxious for subscriber details on Disney+, Plus, its streaming service that timed its launch in 2020 perfectly. We'll also want to hear about parks attendance in Asia, Europe, and the U.S., which just reopened. What's the summer looking like? At Airbnb, the house rental and experience company is also coming off a very strong year as U.S. travelers pretty much only ventured domestically amid the pandemic. Still, the company did say that its growth rate is slowing in terms of members on its platform. The stock has fallen 30% from recent highs. This week, we'll also get key reports on U.S. core inflation in addition to retail sales for April and a preliminary reading on consumer confidence for May. We know inflation is omnipresent, but it hasn't really showed up meaningfully in government reports to date. Consumers are feeling it, but that's not slowing their spending. Retail sales and consumer sentiment should post strong numbers as economies reopen and the personal savings rate in the U.S. is at another all-time high. When I first heard about the Earn Your Leisure podcast, two things went through my mind. Where was this when I was trying to learn my money game? And why didn't I think of this idea? This is financial education and literacy like it needs to be candid and behind the scenes views and conversations with entrepreneurs and investors across sports, entertainment and the financial worlds, business model breakdowns, deep dives into crypto and collectible investing, webinars on real estate, but taught and preached by real people who are making it happen and most importantly, paying it forward. Rashad Bilal and Troy Millings are the creators of the Earn Your Leisure podcast and platform, and they are our very special guests on the Investopedia Express. Welcome, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for the intro. Great intro. Thank you. I'm all out of breath from that. I'm all excited to have you guys on because I I have become such a crazy fan of the podcast. Went for a bike ride the other day. I thought it'd be 30 minutes. I was out there two hours listening to your podcast, listening to your classes. You have so much good stuff on there. Rashad, let's start with you. You're actually a financial advisor. We love financial advisors here at Investopedia. But tell me how you came up with the idea for EYOL. What inspired you? What did you think it could be given what you were already doing? It actually started with social media. And as a financial advisor, I kind of had the idea that I wanted to become big online. I didn't really show, I wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do online, but I felt like I could become a financial, somebody important in the financial literacy movement online. But as a financial advisor, it's very regulated as far as having a security license. So I had to kind of dance around that compliance issue. So Instead of me going online and just giving advice to say, okay, buy this stock and do this and that, I kind of experimented with different ways to provide value without actually crossing the compliance line. And for me, that came with breaking down backstories of sports and entertainment. 
and putting the, the medicine and the candy. And I know we all love pop culture, sports, and entertainment. So I was going on other people's shows, anybody that would really have me, radio shows, public access shows. And what people were really interested in the most were like the deep dives into different deals. So like one clip went viral, a 50 cent vitamin water deal, kind of broke that down, explained that, explained H&M's play when they did the uh, collaboration with Lara yeah. Wang, stuff like, a lot of stuff like that. And that had just built so much traction on Instagram that people kept asking me, where could they see this full version? If I had a podcast with my podcast, and at the time I didn't have a podcast. So me and Troy have history. We've been friends for all of our life pretty much, but we also had a financial literacy class going for six summers at the same time as me starting this financial literacy thing online. So he's a teacher. So he brought me in to actually speak on financial literacy and then that developed into a, a curriculum that we developed in the summertime for kids. So I thought that, you know, he would be a perfect host, guest host with me on the podcast since we already had history. We speak at all the time and we already had the financial literacy thing down pat because he's a teacher and I'm a financial advisor and we came together to create the financial literacy. So he agreed to do it. And you know, starting the, the podcast, we didn't really have any expectations, just thought it would be a cool thing to do. And people just kept asking for it. So it was really just to keep growing the attention that I was getting online. Once we started it, we realized that it was much bigger than that. And it just kind of snowballed into where we are now, which is a you know, whole platform of financial literacy, business, investing. And that's been around two years. I want to get into everything on the platform because it has gone way beyond a podcast. But Troy, let's get back to you. You are a teacher. Fizet, you teach some other subjects. You're an educator by nature. So this type of thing comes naturally to you. But how did the crossover happen to all of a sudden talking about business, talking about business and pop culture in ways that people can relate to? Because I think that's the key here. You talked about vitamin water. You talked about H&M. These are practical things that consumers that we see every day, and they make for such good backstories. That's what we love in business journalism. But what brought you as an educator to this point? I was working in in New York City and I was teaching health and phys ed, but I, all my friends are educators. And so I knew that there was a lack of knowledge that was going to be used outside of school. So we always complained that, look, the things that we're learning, when are they ever going to use it? And so very quickly, I decided, look, we need to create something that could be used for the rest of their lives. And financial literacy was one of those things. And so like Shah said, we were doing a summer program. And so I was trying to create a curriculum for a five day week. And I'm like, okay, well, what are things do we need to know? Do they need to know how to interview? Yeah. Okay. Do they need to know how to write a resume? Okay. Yeah. Do they need uh, etiquette? Okay. Yeah, we can do that. But most importantly was financial literacy because at the end of the program, our kids are going to get paid $500. And so they were 14 years old and that had been the first time they did probably most of them were going to come in contact with money. And so we wanted to teach them about the value of money, how to have a positive relationship with money. So that's where the financial literacy piece came in. And so every week, Shadi would come in and we would just teach kids and it, they were so receptive because one of the things we learned in education is you have to be relevant. The things have to be practical and they have to be relevant, all the lessons. And so when we talked about money in, in terms of taxes, it related to them because they buy clothes and they buy food. That was a great intro to, to sales taxes. It was like these things we're, we're actually using in our everyday life. And to see their reception to it, it was like, all right, we got something here. And so when he was doing the, the financial literacy piece on social media, I was watching, like, these are conversations that we had that he was turning into stories. And so everything was like, all right, this thing is going. Like, let's help him. Let's help him. And one day he was just like, look, I need a hashtag for my campaign. And Ernie Leisure was the thing I thought of. I'm like, this is perfect because especially coming from where we come from, everybody thinks that we were born with a silver spoon. 
we had no trials and tribulations. Everything was given to us, not knowing that how hard we had to work, go to school, work two to three jobs, really earn everything that we had. Even though it wasn't much at the time, but it was it was it took our community it looked bigger than it was. And so earning leisure became the hashtag for which actually turned into the name of the show later. And like you said, it's just been a snowball ever since. You guys have been onto it, but how important is financial literacy? And especially in the communities you grew up in, especially up here in Harlem where I am or the Bronx or cities across America, it's the one thing they don't teach, but it's probably the most important thing. You guys woke up to that a long time ago. How how have you seen those lessons permeating throughout your communities? Yeah, I think uh, financial literacy is probably one of the most important things that you can learn if you really think about it. It's like whether you're a garbage man, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a lawyer, Everybody has to pay bills. Everybody has to hopefully retire at some point. Everybody has to pay taxes. So that's kind of the common denominator across all professions is basic finance. And it's something that's not taught in school. It's kind of mind-boggling where, you know, a lot of stuff that's taught in school, astronomy, trigonometry, (laughs) biology, a lot of that stuff is very specific. Like biology is important if you're going to be a doctor, but how many people are actually going to be doctors? So the vast majority of people are never going to use any of that stuff at all. So it's always interesting to me why they teach things that only 5% or maybe 2% of the population is ever going to actually use in their real life. And the stuff that 100% of the people are going to use is like an elective or at best elective and most schools not taught at all. It's been a vast change and we've seen ourselves just being in our community. I feel like when we were teaching kids, we realized very quickly that they loved it. They wanted to grasp all the concepts, but we also realized that the parents didn't really understand what we were teaching. And so right there was like, oh, this is perfect. Like the kids didn't know, but the parents didn't know either. And we were like, all right, there's no age limit to this. And I think right now what we're seeing is that people are not scared to not know. For so long, we didn't know and we wouldn't ask questions because we had no idea. And now it's a, a drastic change with our platform, especially where if you didn't know, now you have an option to learn. So your guests on the podcast are successful entrepreneurs and investors. A lot of them are angel investors who are putting money into ideas they're hearing from your listeners and from your network. What have you created here? It's gone way beyond the podcast where you actually have people who are talking about deals and investing money in other people and really paying it forward here. Yeah, I think the ecosystem, entrepreneurs, investors, people that want to learn, it all comes together like a financial gumbo of sorts. So I think that what we have created, like you said, even goes beyond a platform. It's really an ecosystem and a community. That's probably the best way to describe it. It's a community. And people come to learn. People come to educate. People come to network with each other because we have so many different channels that we have. We have podcasts. We have university. We have Instagram. You know, we have YouTube. So depending on which platform you are most engaged with will determine what you're actually doing what you're using it for the purpose of it but it's really grown into a whole community and it's reached levels that we probably would have never thought overseas we have a large following in in the uk and canada and africa all of the caribbean islands so it's become a global community and hopefully we plan on just continuing to grow and continuing to reach the masses and educate people and provide information so people can better their lives yeah, it's it's worldwide. And you know, it just speaks to how important the conversation is that people want to have right now. And you guys know this very well, because you do episodes on the show about crypto, about uh, non-fungible tokens. Money's changing, right? The way that our parents maybe taught us or they learned how to invest or save money, all of that is changing. I'm the, the principles are there, but the products 
And the the ways to access the market are so different now. And you guys are so on top of that. Is it a passion just to stay on top of where this is going? Or are you just seeing this happen in your community where this is how people are investing and you got to know? Yeah, I feel like it's a passion. Like every day I'm trying to learn. I, I know Rashad's the same way. We're trying to learn every day so we can give the knowledge to the people that are relying on us. I look at us like, like you said, it's a platform, but it's also a resource for people. And so when people are, are relying on the information, then it's up to us to make sure that we're learning it in a way that we can understand it. And especially in teaching, we know that if we can understand something, the best way to prove it is to teach it to somebody else. And so that's our challenge. Every episode, every piece of content that we put out is like, all right, we've grasped this to a point where we can make it understandable for our community. So it's a challenge every day. But it's a beautiful challenge because as we're learning, right, and teaching, we're gaining more knowledge and our database personally becomes more in depth. Absolutely. I feel the same way. And that's the beautiful thing about financial education. There's really no end to it. It's a lifelong journey. And it's a lifelong journey in terms of educating yourself about it, but also building wealth. But what I love about the platform is there's this generosity of spirit where people want to help other people build wealth. And they're spreading the love. They're spreading the ideas around. They're spreading the investments around. How big can this be, guys? This started as a podcast, you know, because you guys realized you were good at talking about this. But now where where can you take this? You take it as big as something that's never been seen before. As far as the network, I think we can be like an Al Jazeera's with global and have a, you know, a UK division have an African division, Nigeria, different things of that nature. This is something that I think is very realistic. Private equity firm, I think, is something that makes sense for us because we come across so many different businesses and different people that have ideas, and we help them out a lot by giving them so much promotion. So, you know, as far as building up a private equity firm that we can potentially take public to the stock market, I think that that's something that is very realistic as well. On the education side, you know, growing our online university, we become the premier learning institution online in the world, bigger than Phoenix University, is something that I think is very realistic. We have 8,000 students now. We've only been in existence for over a year. So, you know, to, to scale that to, you know, 20, 50,000 people, I think is something that is definitely possible within the next five years. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's, that's a few, that's a few things, a few items. And I think Andy left out the media component, right? Like we do have a, a podcast, but we also have a, a network of podcasts where we give creators a chance to express their brilliance and their field of expertise. That can lead to a multitude of things from TV shows to a broadcast network. So it's really endless, man. And to think that two years ago, we were just sitting here like, all right, we should do this to see where it is now and see where it can go is, is really it's really satisfying. Well, you're really good at it. And you tapped into the fact that people want to learn about these things. You have this great way of teaching it through your community, but that's the key. You've created the community and the community with the great content and the spirit of financial education and literacy is what glues this whole thing together. Look, you're worldwide. You're a, you're a global phenomenon and, and it's beautiful to watch. And great marketers say, if it's a good name, it fits well on a t-shirt on a, or on a hat or on a hoodie and you can shorten it. So you got EYL, you got great merchandise on the site too. And I'm going to to pick some up. Where can folks find you? I know it's easy to find you at earnyourleisure.com, but you are everywhere. If folks listening to this or trying to, to tap in, where's the best place for them to start? Yeah, uh, Earn Your Leisure across every platform, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Earn Your Leisure, and then our podcast, Earn Your Leisure Podcast. That's on all major podcast outlets, Apple, Spotify, iHeart. And then, yeah, as you said, uh, earnyourleisure.com. That's our website, which all of the information is on there. Links to our merch links to our university, which is EYLuniversity.com. That's like the mothership, but earnyourleisure.com is the mothership. So, yep, that's pretty much 
it's, we make it as easy to understand as possible. So yeah, earn your leisure. If you just type in earn your leisure, no matter where you go, you'll, you'll find us. And the, folks, there is so much content there. Literally got lost for a few hours the other day. Had to, had to tie a string just to get myself back out of. But Rashad Alal and Troy Millings, the creators of Earn Your Leisure, thanks so much for being our guests on The Express this week and keep doing the great work that you're doing. Thank, well, thank, thank you for having us. I appreciate it. It's terminology time, but we're mixing it up this week. That's right. No socks. We are giving away an Investopedia Express hoodie, and these folks are limited editions. They're midnight black with our sweet logo developed by Alex Kerr and Joyce Chen. And we took your listener questions all week, and you sent in some doozies. We're going to have to host another Ask Me Anything on Instagram to tackle all these. But this week's question, and the winner of the Express limited edition Buttersoft hoodie, is Shayan Lal Muhammad. Shayan asks, what is the impact that inflation can have on market returns during times of high increases in prices? That's right on topic, Shayan, and you can already see the impact inflation is having on certain sectors of the stock market, even though the Dow and the S&P 500 are at near record highs. Inflation is one of those double-edged swords. No one likes to pay for more goods and services, but companies need inflation so they have pricing power to grow and expand their businesses. That should lead to more hiring, at least it used to. Typically, consumer goods companies benefit from rising inflation because they sell staples that we can't live without. Procter & Gamble and Colgate-Palmolive and other consumer giants have already warned that they will raise prices later this year due to inflationary pressures. But some consumer discretionary companies also benefit from higher inflation, especially if they have a really loyal customer base like a video game publisher or some online retailers. Keep in mind, inflation has been really, really low for a really long time. It hasn't been above 5% since 1992, and even though it's rising, it's nowhere near those levels. And interest rates are really low too, and they're going to stay that way for a couple of years. That combination of low interest rates and relatively low inflation, that's been pretty good for the stock market. Good question, Cheyenne. Send us a picture of you in your sweatshirt or tag us online if that's how you roll. We're going to let David Swenson take us out this week. David was the chief investment officer at Yale University until he passed away last week from a long battle with cancer at the age of 67. Swenson revolutionized the way many colleges invest, creating the blueprint that helped hundreds of schools and nonprofits grow their endowments to pay for things like financial aid for students and research. He's not a household name, but Swenson was widely regarded by other investors as one of the greatest to ever live. He grew Yale's endowment from $1 billion in 1985 $31 billion last year. Here's Swenson on the importance of what it means to be a fiduciary. The importance of being a fiduciary, putting yourself in the shoes of your clients and trying to serve their interests, it serves not only the interests of the asset manager, but it serves the interests of society. Thank you, David. And thanks to all of you for tuning in this week. And a special hat tip to Rashad Bilal and Troy Millings from Earn Your Leisure and Dr. Jessica Shepard from Very Well. Stay healthy and stay smart this week. And we'll see you a little further on down the line. 